Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. You wet, upset, cardboard box full of terriers. Strewn on the side of the motorway. Adjacent to Texaco Station. Waiting for a good Samaritan to rescue you. I don't even know what I just said there because I'm messing around with the levels. On this thing here. Two seconds. Okay, can you hear me? God bless. God bless. God bless. Alright. How are you getting on? Hope you've been having a charming week. A relaxing week. Hope you haven't been putting too much pressure on yourself. There's no need for pressure. It's for pricks. Um, I've been keeping very busy. Just a little update I mentioned last week that I'm currently in preparation for getting a live streaming situation together we are getting closer to that goal some equipment arrived last week I had a couple of breakthroughs with the camera that I'm using Um, it's looking good it's looking good and I've been practicing I've been practicing all week um, particularly with just to fill you in if you weren't listening last week. So what what I'm planning on doing is a video live stream on a website called Twitch. Which means I'll probably do it once or twice a week in my studio. And I got my camera sorted. Uh, I got some other equipment sorted. And what I intend on doing, I'm going to be playing some video games. I will be doing some painting, hopefully. I'm trying to figure out how the fuck to get art supplies during this gorgeous quarantine. And what I think I'm most excited about at the moment is I want to write songs live. I want to write, record and produce music live, which I'll tell you why that's exciting for me. It's exciting because... It's something within art that wasn't really possible before because the technology didn't exist. Alright? So, songwriting, music production, that that type of creativity, that's been around for a long time. But the idea that you can do it live with a load of people watching, not only watching but having the ability to comment as it's happening... Or possibly even give input or suggestions. Why that excites me is because that's participatory art, right? That's known as participatory, socially engaged art, and which has roots going back years and years to the fucking futurism, to Dadaism, you know, to the the Russian Revolution. This democratization of art to take art away from the concept of just creating an object creating an object right that is the piece of art and then the audience just simply watches it and consumes it the goal of participatory art is to blur that line between how the fuck do I explain this with a piece of art with a song right an artist creates a song it's done, and then 
the audience listens to it. Or an artist writes a play and the audience turns up and watches the play. Or an artist paints a painting and the audience comes to the gallery and sees the painting, right? The goal of participatory art, which, like I said, is that they've been trying to do it for 100 years, has been to blur the line to how can you include the audience in the creation of the artwork so that artist and audience and the entire creative process gets completely now blurred and shifted. And the idea that I can live stream making a song with input and participation, that's really exciting to me because it's fucking new. It's new as fuck. So... I'm looking forward to doing it. I've been practicing it all week. Like there are, I'm not the first person to fucking do it. There are people on Twitch who make songs live, but in general, what I see when I see certain performers doing it, there's one fella called Mark Rebele who's amazing. When I see performers doing music live on live streams, it's much more of it's performance based. It's it's not full creative process. What what I intend on doing is literally inviting you into the studio and being part of the production process. So not just writing the song, but like what synthesizers am I choosing? How am I mixing the sounds? And hopefully then as well, an exchange of information whereby if someone's watching it and they want to learn, how do you make songs? How do you learn to produce how do you learn to mix how do you learn to record that part of my creative process and the goal of making a song in 60 minutes is also sharing the creative process and being able to share with ye something i'm deeply passionate about and then the possibility of the viewer then learning uh from my experience so i'm it's just mad fucking it's mad exciting to think that i'm going to be able to do that so fingers crossed technology will allow me um, so what I've been doing in preparation is, like I said, what what I want to do is I want to live stream and I want to, when I start the video stream, I want to say, we're giving ourselves 60 minutes and within this 60 minutes, at the end of it, I'm going to fucking write, record and produce a song in 60 fucking minutes. So I had to say to myself, is that a realistic goal? Is it possible to write a song in 60 minutes? So all week I've been doing it. Every day this week, I took a 60-minute chunk and I wrote a fucking song. At the end of the 60 minutes, I had a fucking song. Not necessarily good songs, but that's not the goal. It's... Making a 60-minute song is like, um, it's a sketchbook. It's sketchbook. I'm not necessarily looking for something brilliant. What I'm looking for is anything. I'm looking for something. It's confronting the fear of failure and just simply creating a piece of music. And the critic in me that that is worried about whether something is good or bad, truly silencing that voice in myself. And just like I'm a, like I like I always say, like I'm a child playing with Lego, except it sounds. So I'm going to play you one of the songs I wrote during the week. And I did this in, in 60 minutes flat. Um, I didn't 
that it's a song's about Brussels sprouts. I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write about Brussels sprouts. I simply found some chords that I liked, found a bass line that I liked, and then allowed what, whatever words came out of my mouth that fit the melody, that's what went down. I didn't question them. I didn't ask were they good or they bad. I just fucking went with it. And that's that's the goal that I'm going for. So it's a silly, stupid song about Brussels sprouts. Afterwards, I was reflecting, why the fuck did I write a song about Brussels sprouts? And I kind of wrote it off going, I don't know. But then I realised earlier that day, I hadn't eaten Brussels sprouts. But what had happened is I had rejected Brussels sprouts, which I found very interesting. So I was deciding on like, what am I going to have for dinner? So I opened my freezer and staring at me were a bag of Brussels sprouts. And I thought about having some Brussels sprouts at my dinner and then I said no fuck ye you're too Christmassy and it's sunny outside and I was kind of harsh on the Brussels sprouts in my head or something and because I rejected them and said not today buddy it's it's April and it's sunny outside and you remind me of Christmas so fuck you Brussels sprouts because I'd done that they creeped back into my head when I was writing that song probably has some type of guilt because I was mean to Brussels sprouts I know that's ridiculous I'm aware that that's ridiculous I'm not saying the Brussels sprouts could fucking hear me rejecting them but it obviously had some type of emotional impact on me to the point that it arrived into my head so in the moment I unconsciously wrote a song which praised and possibly sexualised Brussels sprouts and that's the beauty of the creative process afterwards you have to go what the fuck was that about? So I'll play it for you now. The song is called Round Green Boys. And you know what? I'm fucking happy with it. Um, I'm happy with it. If I'd have done this on a live stream, I think I'd be happy. Th- there's elements of it. That's the whole point of this thing. When you're writing a demo like this, you're not looking for a finished piece. You're trying to see what bits work and what bits don't and what bits can I take and then start again with something new. So here we go, round green buys. I'm sorry to tell you, but your father's on Mars. Your mother's in prison for robbing my car. Your dog is on fire and they're not putting him out. So come to my house and we'll eat Brussels sprouts Because the round green boys, round green boys Oh, they're such round green boys Round green boys, oh, they're such round green boys Round green boys, oh, they're such round green boys Round green boys Sorry to tell you, your father's a mouse Your mother's in prison for robbing my cow Thank you. 
so there you go so I was very happy with that that was my practice can I do a song in 60 minutes and I was very happy with that one because it it, uh, it passed what's called the old grey whistle test in that for the rest of my day that chorus of fucking round green boys was stuck in my head I was whistling it so I was like success I found the melody and I know it's ridiculous I know it's silly no one wants to listen to a song about fucking Brussels sprouts but like I said it's a sketchbook it's a demo you know what would you do with that Um, fucking change it instead of uh, round green boys change it to brown green eyes and change the lyrics in the verse about fancying someone and then have it sung by a person with a conventionally aesthetic voice and there you go you have a whack of the pop song so I'm really looking forward to being able to do that shit live on my stream when that's up and running very soon so there you go so this week's podcast what is it about I think it's a bit of a hot take I think it's a hot take podcast. It's in the, it's in the territory of where hot takes exist. It's a hot take style musing, which I'd like you to join me on. Uh, what I want to begin talking about is that thing I touched on earlier when I was saying that the reason the idea of creating a piece of music live with the people watching actually being involved, the reason why I find that so exciting is, as I mentioned, it's participatory art. It's art whereby there's participation from everybody in creating it. It's not just one person. And I want to talk about the history, within art history, of why that idea has always been considered really, really radical in art, okay? But it's one of those ones that it's just, it's a tough one to explain. It's a difficult one to explain because in general as a society, our perception of art and what art is and what art does is is really fucking flawed. It's really flawed. Um, The past week I really saw it because... The, the Irish government, like during this corona crisis, the Irish government rolled out a plan to, to stimulate and look after the arts in Ireland. And I won't go into it in too much detail, but it's like they, did, they didn't consult with any fucking artists. They didn't, they've, they don't seem to have any idea of what, what the arts is, that it's it's not just writers and painters and directors, whatever. It's the people who work within the arts to make it happen like just for a gig for example there's people who work sound people who work lights there's people who work in theatre it's not just about artists and the Irish government put out this pretty shit plan to support artists who have all lost their fucking jobs like anyone who works in entertainment has an incredibly uncertain future now because mass gatherings are gone so but when any artist complained about this in the media, the vitriol from the general public was horrendous. People were just going, why should we give a fuck about art? Why should we care about artists? 
this view that art isn't a proper vocation or that art isn't important and people being completely unaware they think that art is just some person off doing a painting or some person off writing a play and have no awareness whatsoever about how art and creativity affects and impacts all of our lives do you know no awareness that you know going on to the fucking Irish Times going look at these fucking artists these stupid artists out complaining that the government isn't looking after them and then going off and looking at six hours of Netflix while they're in quarantine, being unaware that every single person who made the Netflix program that you're consuming is working in the arts in some description. Or they went to the fucking, they listened to a radio or they read the read a book. People seem to be, the general public seems to be completely unaware of what art and creativity is and how much of it we actually consume in our day and how hugely important it is for our collective mental health and not just mental health but our sense of meaning and purpose and how we relax how we enjoy ourselves there's you go to work and then when you're finished work you're either consuming sport or art or just socialising but art is huge and art's important. And and that's just art as entertainment. Art as entertainment is just one possible function of what art can do. Art doesn't have to be entertaining. Some art can make you really angry. Some art is looking for a reaction. Some art is ugly. Some art is designed to enrage, to challenge you. And that's the purpose of it. Art is not just entertainment, but it's a way to challenge power. It's a way to challenge politics. It's a way to have discussions that transcends simple debate and words. It's a way to to ask questions about society and about ourselves. Not just using words, but using like fucking music like music is vibration symmetrical vibrations of air that make us feel emotions painting fucking visuals art is is it's a it's a way to have conversations that are far more complex than just words can do and real radical art and radical artists have always been concerned about how can this art be used to somehow better and improve society and challenge power. So this week I'm going to do an arty farty podcast and I'm going to give myself the task of yeah, trying to address, tr- trying to democratise, trying to put into simple language a really one of the a really fucking complex thing about art which i think it's participatory art also known as socially engaged art i've definitely mentioned it on previous podcasts this is what i did my master's degree in i did my master's degree in participatory art what what i did is i i did it on internet memes i i it was about 2015 and a huge part of my thesis was looking at internet memes and framing them as participatory art, as an act of create a creativity which 
had no had no authorship. Like when you see an internet meme, you don't know who made it. You don't sign off on an internet meme and it's like, here's the artist who made this internet meme. But yet they exist as these creative artifacts. An internet meme is creative. People use creativity to create a meme. They're shared everywhere. We add to them at all times. Anyone can add to them. And internet memes are, in my opinion, true participatory art. Participatory means it's not just about an one author. It's not just one artist creates this piece of art for an audience. Participatory art is whereby the artist is taken out of the equation and there's now a complete blurring of boundaries between audience and artist and the audience and the artist are one and everyone participates together as a community to create a piece of art and that's what internet memes are in my opinion that's what I did my my thesis on for my master's degree so I want to talk about participatory art and its roots in the historical avant-garde of artists of the 20th century and why it is considered radical and why it's important and it's going to be a tough one to talk about because even though I did my fucking masters on this shit it's just one of those it's difficult it's difficult to get across but I'm going to try my best so I'm going to mention certain artistic movements that I've definitely covered before in the podcast Futurism, Dadaism, maybe Surrealism, and possibly Situationism, okay? These, the first three are early 20th century art movements. The first one would be Futurism, which would have started around 1911 or 1912 in Italy. I've done a podcast on Futurism and Music. I did a podcast on futurism and music. Um, I also did a podcast before on on performance art called Jolly Fauntleroy, but that was more late 20th century. But I don't want to focus too much on the movements. What I want to focus on is why they considered participatory art to be so radical, to be the most radical form of art making so first you have to try and think of what was society and culture like circa 1910 in Europe because this is these are mainly European movements right what you have is the end of the industrial revolution right about 1910 that's the end of the industrial revolution age but it's also it's a real important time for technology you've seen in you know the car became a thing people are able to fucking fly by 1910 but in terms of the structure of society and the place that art had in society in society art would have been viewed by the radical artists the art world at the time would have been viewed by radical artists as something which was just used to 
prop up pre-existing systems of power, right? If you think of like paintings, so paintings as one form of art. Paintings were you di- you didn't have fucking there was no television, right? There was no fucking internet. There was no color images, right? People weren't really the average person wasn't experiencing a lot of visual stimulation when it came to images. So a beautiful painting had about 100 times more power back then as it would now. If you see a painting now, it's probably not going to impress you that much because we've got screens on our phones that are bombarding us with visual information all day. But you go back to 1910, a really good fucking painting is going to have a lot of power and it might be the only breathtaking piece of human creation that you see all year if you're a poor person in Europe in the early 20th century. So paintings were, they were in galleries, they were in churches, they were in the homes of landlords, right? And I'm just using painting as one example. The church, uh, traditionally, all throughout the fucking Renaissance, all throughout the Industrial Revolution, the church had an intimate relationship with artists, with sculptors and painters, right? In order for a sculptor and painter in the Renaissance and beyond to exist and earn money, they required the usually the church to be their patrons. The church would provide the artist with money to earn a living and in return then the artist had to paint paintings or make sculptures which usually glorified religion in some way, okay? This was done for two reasons. The bishop or whatever who wanted to commission the work, they wanted themselves to look holy because they're, they're commissioning this wonderful, magical piece of art, which is a gift from God. They would have viewed artists as having a gift from God. But most importantly... Why did the church want gorgeous churches full of fucking sculptures? Why did they want paintings up and down the pews that represent scenes from the Bible that have, you know, tell you about penance, they tell you about the dangers of sin, they tell you about how to live your life in a chaste, uh, obedient way, they tell you about the horrible fires of hell. All this visual information that the church is spending a lot of money on these beautiful paintings, it does a couple of things. Number one, it creates a sense of awe and power. If you're a poor person who goes to the fucking church, all throughout the Renaissance, up until the early 20th century, and you're a poor peasant, you go to the fucking church, you walk in, beautiful marble columns, gorgeous fucking statues that are sculpted, and these huge paintings that represent biblical scenes... You're present. You're. You, it's. It's like going to the cinema times a hundred. You now have a sense of awe, and you're in awe at the power and the terror and the beauty of these images. The church were using them as a way to maintain power, using fear and beauty and emotions, and that's why there was. That's why that structure existed, whereby it's 
incredibly talented artist makes a painting paid for by the church, painting what the church tell them to paint and trying their best to be creative and subverted in any way they can. But in general, it's it's propaganda. It's church propaganda. That's what, that was the role of art, of painting in the church context, context propaganda, to maintain obedience of the masses. Worth noting as well that, uh, you know, people couldn't read. And in Catholic churches, the masses were being said in Latin. So people, even when the fucking priest is reading the Bible, the average person sitting down hasn't a fucking clue what he's saying because they don't speak Latin. But they can look around the pews and see the just the spectacle, the spectacle of fucking Christ nailed to a cross. Like, what the fuck is that? Do you know what I mean? It's a, a strong image that just says, there's love here if you want it, but don't fuck around. Christ on a cross is a, is a warning. Like, if you, if you break down the image of Christ on a cross and you take it to... It's... it's like, my personal belief of Christ on the cross and what it represents, it's in primitive societies, like, long, long ago, the local powerful person would cut their enemies' fucking heads off and leave them on a stick or on a pole as a warning. You see it today with drug cartels. If they want to warn the populace, cut someone's fucking head off and post the video online. ISIS were doing it too. In societies where you don't have fucking democracy, instead you have brutality, the spectacle of utter violence is used to maintain power and obedience. And that, to me, is what the crucifix is. What the fuck else is it? Here's a painting of someone with nails driven through their fucking hands and blood coming from their head. That right there, the traditional image of Christ in art is is a big warning don't fuck with us so that was one way that art was viewed as right the church used it as a way to maintain power let people know who was in power who was in power and not to fuck with them and that was its role obviously it's fucking beautiful as well but i'm not going into that today i'm going into its role as 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 a, a device of power I'm not being binary about it. I'm not saying that's the only thing that art did. I'm saying it's... it's When you look at it in, in, a, in the cold light of why did the church commission so much paintings and sculptures, this is what it did for them. It made them powerful. Also, by the time of the Industrial Revolution, where you have now not just kings and royalty who have money, but you have like factory owners they were also commissioning art if you were a wealthy factory owner or a wealthy landlord essentially a capitalist if you were a capitalist in the 1700s the 1800s a very very wealthy person you had the ability now to commission artists to paint your portrait or to paint a portrait of your house and to then place your fucking art on the walls of your house or in your factory where the workers are and now you've got these beautiful paintings up on the fucking wall which places the landlord or places the factory owner in a religious light now it's like wow how powerful and important is this landlord 
or this factory owner that they now have a painting the same way that Christ has when he's in the fucking church. So what it also did too is it makes when when a painting is just this beautiful thing on a wall it works within capitalism as, as a commodity to be fetishized and it makes the audience it it's what it does is it, the, the general public just becomes spectators then you become a spectator to the art the art is a reminder of know your place your place is behind this line where you are spectating at this beautiful piece of art and this beautiful piece of art represents the church your landlord your factory owner and you are a spectator you are not permitted to participate it is not your place to participate you stay where the fuck you are because you're a worker and you're not entitled to beauty you're not entitled to the, the beauty and power and everything that this art represents. So it creates spectatorship, right? And delineated rules of access. And it's what also is the situation too is the cultural knowledge of art. Art became, by 1910, if you're to understand art in 1910, it means you then need to have access to education. And to have access to education back then, you needed to have money. So it was a way to separate the classes. So not just having access to have art made about you or to be in, in a, a gallery where art is going to be there. To even have knowledge of art at that time connoted your higher status in society so these radical artists of the early 20th century they their thinking was essentially sparked and rooted in the new ideas of Marxism right which I'm going to speak about very cautiously because I'm not very brushed up in it like I said the last time I fucking properly looked at Marxism was my master's in 2015 and the great irony of Marxism is that in, in 2020 Marxism has become intertwined with hipsterism so this philosophy and concepts which is supposed to be about democratization is actually incredibly heavily gatekept by hipsters so if I get something wrong about Marxism I'll have a very upsetting time on Twitter for the next week so before I move on, I'm going to do the ocarina pause. We just do it really quickly. Have I got the nice one? I don't. I've got the crappy one. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. That was the ocarina pause. Um, this is the first time I get to talk about the Patreon, whereby speaking about it is actually entirely relevant to the theme of the podcast. So like I mentioned there, right? Patrons. Like a patron. A patron is someone who gives an artist money and allows them to create art, right? But one of the issues I was speaking about there with the historical problem of art is that most of the patrons of the artists from the Renaissance onwards, it was either the church or the incredibly wealthy. And the problem with that patronage was the artists have to create the art that keeps their patron happy. So if your patron is a bishop or a cardinal, it's do a bunch of religious shit, regardless of how the the artist themselves feels about it. They have to find as much creativity as they can and explore what they can but within the confines of religious paintings if it was a wealthy fucking banker or a landlord paint my estate paint a portrait of me the patronage allowed artists to survive and to make a living from being artists but they didn't their creative freedom was limited because they had one fucking patron with an agenda the the patreon Right, and how this podcast is supported is actually a form of participatory art because the patronage so like this podcast right is supported by the listener by you, okay, but instead of it being one patron, it's multiple listeners together becoming patrons. Right? It's a participatory type of patronage, which means that we're not beholden to one ideology. If, we'll say now the equivalent of a patron would be an advertiser. So if I didn't have a Patreon and instead I'm struggling to get advertisers all the time, right? And just advertising, then. There's certain things I'm not going to talk about. I can't talk about. The advertiser might come in and go. I didn't like it when you did that podcast about the IRA. And then I'd have to go. Sorry Coca-Cola. I'll be a good buy. But. With patronage. And multiple people. Coming together to be. Patrons. That's no longer a problem. So. The art of this podcast. Podcast has been liberated. From the confines of spectatorship. By becoming a participatory form of art. By everybody participating in the patronage of it. So that's the first time ever I've done a a, a request for the Patreon. Patreon, Patreon, whatever the fuck you want to call it. That's relevant to the theme of the episode. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. Alright. You know the score. Um... Because of coronavirus, I don't have any gigs for the foreseeable future. I've incurred quite a lot of debt because I have postponed some gigs. So the p- 
Patreon is my only fucking, my only source of income. So if you're enjoying the podcast, look, if you're listening to it, if it's getting you through the quarantine, please consider uh, paying me. That's that's all I'm asking for. Just pay me for the work that I'm doing. Um, the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's all I'm asking for. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. And also in the spirit of participatory fucking art. If you can't afford it, you don't have to. Someone else, someone else's patronage is going to look after you listening. It's it's a model based on soundness and kindness. And it's working fantastically. And thank you to everyone who is a patron of this podcast. So, <clears throat> going back to that point there that I said that... We'll take it to the futurists, we'll say. So the futurists were... Started around 1910, I think. And futurism, like I said, I did I did a, a podcast before on a fella called Luigi Rosolo, who was a sound artist within futurism. But futurism incorporated many different types of art. Futurism is a dodgy one to talk about because the futurists went on to become part of Italian fascism. So it's it's quite a problematic movement. Which, but unfortunately, yes, it did go into Italian fascism, but the roots of futurism, they were inspired by Marxism and they're quite important to 20th century art. So the futurists, they, it was pure modernism in that they were very forward looking. They embraced technology and they 100% had like faith in in science and technology and speed and all these things. This is what the futurists were about. The futurists is an art movement that's born out of the first generation of people who's seen human beings flying in planes and what that would have meant for society. Like being a part of the generation who are like, fuck, we can fly now. Wow, like birds. That gave humanity kind of an arrogance and the futurists had that arrogance of humankind being much greater than nature and rejecting a concept of God and rejecting a concept of nature and embracing factories and speed and all of this so that was that's the bare bones tenet of what futurism was about but the futurists very much wanted to inject a kind of a class consciousness in all of Italy, in particular the the working class who would have been the masses of Italy to what the futurists really wanted was war they wanted Italy to enter World War 1 they were very a very war hungry art movement like I said, speaking about the futurists is it's problematic because they're not the nicest bunch of fucking lads but you can't leave them out of the story and the futurists would have very much have rejected what they would have seen at the time as traditional art and as I mentioned the sense of spectatorship you go to a gallery you go to a church you go to a play you go to the opera the audience are simply spectators and spectators are staring at the spectacle and the art is the spectacle and that art simply represents power and when you're a spectator, spectators don't participate and spectators are disempowered. So what the futurists, futurists wanted to do with their art was to 
get people participating. Like the founder of Futurism, uh, Marinetti was his name. He said participation was the end of spectatorship and was a commitment to cause. So they viewed audience participation in the creation of art. The, the logic is almost if art in churches and art in galleries and art commissioned by landlords if these things can be used as powerful spectacles to maintain to keep people in their place then if you remove that barrier of spectatorship and then blur the lines of artist and art you then empower people to go hold on a second we can participate we can do more we can have revolution we can uh, be self-determining in our own lives collectively that was the kind of the thinking behind it which is absolutely inspired by Marxism but the goals of the futurists it wasn't necessarily Marxist they didn't want communism the like Marinetti who founded the Futurists, they had very strong political goals from the outset. They wanted to use art to tear down that spectacle, to, to stop people being spectators in art, but use to get people per, to feel that they can participate in art, because art was so important at the time, culturally. If people could participate in art, then you could get them to participate in much greater things regarding society. And what the futurists wanted was to overthrow the bourgeoisie, the rich people who were ruling Italy, get rid of the fucking church, and to have this patriotic, nationalistic Italy that was heavily industrialised and warlike. That was the goal of the futurists. And art was the first step in them trying to get it. And... Mussolini got into power. Mussolini was friends with the Futurists. He was a, a fascist friend of Hitler's, you know. So the first foray into their attempts at participatory art uh, that the Futurists would have done, they held this regular thing called the Serrat or the Serrat, which was a type of theatre. But the thing is, who the Futurists were trying to reach, and this would be about 1912, who they were trying to reach were the workers, the poorer people, the people who didn't, who worked in the factories or worked in the countryside and who didn't have access to education. And so theatre in Italy around 1913, the bourgeois, who would have been the middle class and upper class who had access to education and money, when they went to the theatre, the theatre for them, it was like... There was plot and structure and actors on stage and you dressed up very nice to go to the theatre and you shut your mouth and you sat down and you had a grand evening at the theatre. The futurists wanted to do the opposite of that because they wanted to appeal to the working masses. So they chose variety theatre. And variety was like... It was more... There wasn't like a plot, there wasn't actors on stage. It's like you'd have a gymnast and then you'd have a bit of comedy and then you'd have someone singing or you might have, I think, what were called freak shows were part of it as well. So a variety theatre, 
it was continual non-stop stimulation of entertaining things but not a long plot that you had to follow for the whole thing so the futurists took that style of theatre and turned it into what they called the serrate but as a way to deliberately get the audience to participate and what I find really interesting about this is like I said the goal of the futurists and their serrate theatre yes it was to create art yes it was to get people participating but their ultimate goal was political they wanted to drive nationalism right and how they did this is the shows themselves became kind of nasty and antagonistic the audience would be sitting down and the performers would be up on stage doing this futurist variety show but the actors on stage would start attacking each other or heckling each other and then they'd start attacking the audience and they would deliberately try and provoke conflict with the audience like they even fucking they put, so the futurists put glue really powerful glue on certain seats in the audience so that if someone in the audience sat down they'd be stuck to the seat and then the people around them would start laughing at them and then fights would, would happen the futurists with their theatre they nearly want they wanted to almost start riots and fighting with every single show also what they do is that if you went to one of these futurist shows in, in the auditorium they might sell the same seat to 10 people so 10 people will go down to their seat and now they're all fighting over who gets to sit down and you have this angry chaos and people digging the heads off each other and screaming and roaring in the audience while the show is going on on stage and then the actors on stage taunting the audience who are fighting and then the futurists would give they'd give free tickets right to people who were drunk people who were seen as like really uh, eccentric they would encourage people to fucking pinch women to fucking punch men in the face they'd put itching powder on seats so people would start fucking itching and what the futurists seemed to have wanted to be doing is they wanted to blur the boundaries between audience and performer and create this sense of fucking angry chaos in 1913 like like because they they riled up the audience so much and made the audience like think of it in contrast to the bourgeois shows at the time the middle classes and the upper classes were dressing really well going to their shows sitting down being polite and as spectators obediently sitting and watching the art unfold on stage with its lovely plot and its lovely music and the futures were trying to create this other theatre that was the exact fucking opposite where instead of simply sitting and admiring the spectacle of the art you're now in chaos fighting with each other fighting with the performers and everything is blurred and they believe that that empowered people to the point that and this is how you know it kind of fucking worked if you're talking about this society whereby art is this spectacle that you stand back from and you watch with reverence and respect in 1913 at one of these futurist shows one of the audience members walked up on stage right 
even the fact that the audience felt comfortable this is 1913 now felt comfortable to walk up on fucking stage and they took a gun out and they handed the gun to Marinetti the leader of the futurists and invited him to commit suicide on stage and when you think of that when you think of what they'd managed to do there that's the radical act they're looking for the audience feel okay now to walk on fucking stage and and ask the the performer to shoot themselves that's a radical tearing down of the boundaries of spectator and spectacle of art and audience no one knows what's going on now it's a theatre of fucking chaos and also what's interesting is that the futurists when they did a show they didn't want the audience clapping they didn't want to put on a good show they wanted the audience to fucking hate them they wanted the audience to spit at them to throw things at them to come up on stage it wasn't about creating beautiful art it wasn't about entertaining people it was about in a, in a culture whereby art is revered as a holy object that depicts gods and the rich where art is this commodity that only the powerful can have you go to a future show and that that's broken down the artists are pieces of shit and it's it it was it was an experiment in chaos and the uh, the audience used to come to the shows with banners and the banners would read perverts pederasts pimps charlatans buffoons they'd have banners like talking shit about the people up on stage and to take it back to that fucking marinetti quote participation was understood as the end of traditional spectatorship and they were doing it for political ends it's it's back to that concept of the ideological state apparatus if art is being used by the ruling classes to maintain power as part of the like the ideological state apparatus is power that's being held in place not by soldiers and police but the ideology and the ideological state apparatus like we said the church for example like i mentioned with how the church commissioned paintings and art that right there is ideology to maintain a structure of power so if art has all this power in italy in 1913 what does it do to a society who can now go to a theater and art has no respect where you're encouraged to spit at the art it creates it's it's the overt message was not just your challenge in art it's your, your challenge in power and power is meaningless and there's no boundary between stage and audience just the same way that there's no boundary between the proletariat and the bourgeois the poor people and the rich people who have the power and that creates an environment for fucking revolution and Mussolini was friends with the fucking futurists it it ended in fascism it ended in fascism for the futurists in Italy you know uh, w- one of the most radical and 
batshit mad artistic movements that turned art on its head. And the modern equivalent of this shit, if some of this is sounding familiar, it's not in art, it's in the media. Tabloid media in particular today, how it conducts itself reminds me a lot of these futurist serrates. The way that they have utter contempt for their own audience, the way that tabloid media is, is deliberately inflammatory about political concepts and ideas. The way that t- tabloid media chooses to enrage people rather than get them to think. And... If you want to see the most vicious inflammatory comments on the internet, they're under vicious inflammatory publications. It's as simple as that. The more inflammatory the publication, the more inflammatory and horrible the comments are, you know. And it's no coincidence. It's no coincidence. Um, the people who, the, the, the thinkers behind this type of media and a lot of political thinkers, they look at fucking art they do I mean I I covered this before on a podcast about Russia about how uh, Putin's top political advisor took a huge amount of his approaches from the world of performance art and applied it to politics to create a sense of chaos Um, it used to be the case in Russia five years ago now it's the case in Britain and the case in the US where Politics is such an enraging circus of nothing but emotion that most people just give up. Like, what do you do with Trump and fucking Boris Johnson? It's too insane. The news is too insane these days. Bizarre things happen every week. You just, you just, you just give up. You know. But I need to. Yeah, I just want to be important to make it clear that I'm not in support of fucking futurism or fascism it's they fucked up they fucked up they took a beautiful concept and the beautiful concept is who says art has to be spectator and spectacle and they turned it on its head and said let's remove spectator and spectacle and make everybody a participant beautiful idea but because it was poisoned by a nasty political agenda and their way of doing it was antagonising and hurting people they ended up getting you know pretty shitty results and Leon Trotsky uh, in 1924 had a lovely comment about futurism he said did not Italian fascism come into power by revolutionary methods though he's referring there the revolutionary methods means futurism in, in revolutionary art By bringing into action the masses, the mobs and the millions, and by tempering and arming them. It is not an accident, it is not a misunderstanding, that Italian futurism has merged into the torrent of fascism. It is entirely in accord with the law of cause and effect. So that's Trotsky right there, the communist, um, basically saying what I just said there. It's, It's... They had a noble potential, but they did it in the wrong way. They antagonised and they ended up with horrible, rotten fascism and Mussolini. And that's what they wanted. Well, they they wanted it and they thought, Jesus, fascism is going to be class, isn't it? They got it wrong. So one other thing I want to move on to, and it's just when speaking about participatory art, why 
participatory art was was traditionally considered avant-garde and radical. Another concept, and this is going to move on from the futurists to how participatory art was used in Russia after the Russian Revolution after 1917 in the early 1920s. Um, You have to look at the concept of individualism versus collectivism. Okay? Um... One critique of art at the turn of the 20th century, and it was a critique against capitalism too, is that in an individualistic society, right? Now, we live in an individualistic society, like Western society that we experience is individualistic. It's individualism is whereby your society is competitive. You are mostly concerned with yourself there's not really any external help, so you must be in the rat race, looking out for yourself, earning as much for yourself as possible to survive. And as a result of that, a culture of selfishness, which is expressed through how we fetishize commodities and all of this, that's individualism. Versus collectivism, which is where you're not 100% concerned with your Everything you do isn't just for you. A lot of your actions are about benefiting your community, everybody. I mean, look, no more perfect time to talk about it than right now. The coronavirus pandemic is really confronting individualistic societies with some serious fucking challenges, right? The countries that are experiencing the worst impact of coronavirus are the US and the UK. Two hugely capitalistic, individualistic societies. Two colonial empires right in individualism like in America there's armed protesters who won't socially isolate they they believe that the social isolation is a violation of their freedom you know um, in like the culture of mask wearing I did this before in a podcast but the culture of, of wearing a mask in countries that are collectivistic, not individualistic, but countries that are collectivistic, a lot of Asian cultures are collectivistic. People wear face masks, right? Not to stop themselves getting sick, but to prevent them from making other people get sick. That there is a, is a tenet of collectivism. People wearing face masks to protect other people for the benefit of the entire community. That's collectivistic thinking. In individualistic countries like in Ireland or to a greater extent the US and fucking Britain, extreme individualism means that people are struggling even with the concept of social distancing. The people can't understand that it's not about you. People saying, I'll take a risk, I'll chance it, I'll get sick, I'm young and healthy and then having to drill it into their heads that it's like, yeah, you are young and healthy, it's not about you. You must behave as if you have it so you don't give it to someone else. You must think collectively. And this was present this is presenting a huge challenge to Western societies and it's been reflected in the higher amounts of fucking coronavirus, right? But individualism and collectivism is also a part of early twentieth century art and the critique against it. So uh, participatory art wanted to get people collectively working together, right? Because one goal of, of, of 
participatory art, and this is what makes it truly radical. Within individualism and capitalism, the concept of art, right, as you create a painting, you then have an object, and this object is a spectacle that spectators uh, admire, and then you can purchase this object, and it can accumulate value. And the value of this art, this art can only be valued by how much money it makes. These are all tenets of individualistic, capitalistic production of art, right? It's a commodity, it's an object, it's a spectacle that spectators look look at and it commands power. Within participatory art and collectivistic ways of making art, how, how do you sell a performance? If the art is not a final product, it's not a painting, it's not a play, it's not a piece of music. If the art actually becomes the act of everyone participating, you can't monetize and sell that. So that was one of the also one of the hugely radical themes of, of why participatory art was so important. It challenged the entire gallery system. It's like you can't buy this night that we just had. There's no one to pay because everyone is participating. It's collectivistic. Um, where they tried to do this exact thing was in Russia after the revolution. So in in Russia, uh, about 1920, right, three years after the Bolshevik Revolution, Russia was trying to, you know, they were they were communists, and they were trying to make the population collectivist. It was trying to turn the population away from bourgeois capitalistic individualism and make an entire population collectivistic in their way of thinking. Specifically to get a largely poor agrarian population. How do you get a huge agrarian population to think industrially uh, and collectivistically so they could work in factories together for the greater good of everyone and not just for themselves? And this was a challenge that Russia had post-1917 revolution. And and they were quite quite radical because they completely rejected any form of art that could be individually produced. Like painting. Things that were founded in taste and and produced for a patron market, right? In favour of practices, right? Artistic practices that were integrated into more industrial ways of thinking. So, they didn't, they they tried to get masses of people together to create, like, performances, to participate in artistic performance, but the goal was to get them thinking collectively as a training for an industrialised society of collective ownership. So, in, like, 1918... Russia founded this organization called the Prolet Cult, which was like a Soviet institution of art, right? That, like I said, it rejected all individual forms of art, art that one artist could produce, like a painting or one artist writing a play. That was out the window, and it was a, an attempt at getting, and it was run by avant garde artists. All of them would have been inspired by like what the futurists were doing and also what Dada 
was doing and it was like this community attempt at having these giant outdoor plays that took place in fucking factories or in town squares and it wasn't particularly successful but the goal of it was to create collectivistic thinking through art but also to create a dominant working class proletarian culture that was completely different to the individualistic and spectacle based bourgeois culture that would have been before the revolution a lot of them a lot of these pieces were like huge plays i suppose you'd call them where everyone there's no audience because the audience are the actors and it's this collective giant play where they would be kind of directed to tell heroic tales where workers would give up their lives to save the factory like there was one that happened in a gas works miles outside uh, I think it was Stalingrad I'm not sure but it was in a gas works and there was thousands of participants and they tried to tell the story of a gas leak in this factory and three brave workers volunteered themselves to die to save the factory and this is the type of vibe and story of these prolet cult attempts at creating a collectivistic way of thinking in the population through art and through theatre and what what I find fucking fascinating though is even though this prolet cult thing was seen as a massive failure mainly because one of the issues of the like the utter democratization of art and for everyone to be participating is the plays and the theatre things they were making weren't very good because there was no one really stepping up as taking roles everyone was together as an equal and that created aesthetic issues in that the art being created wasn't very good but one thing I find fascinating is do you remember that programme Chernobyl last year that was on HBO or fucking Sky Atlantic or whatever one thing really interesting from that and it's based on the true story obviously the bit where the three workers volunteer to die by going up onto the roof of the reactor and and taking the radioactive material away and you have workers literally volunteering knowing that they're going to die to collectivistically save the factory and save the population and I found it so interesting that these early Russian revolution and Soviet collectivistic fucking plays which tell the story of the brave workers like this is 1920 this this play about the fucking the gas factory these brave workers that volunteer to die to save the factory planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...that you actually see that happening 70 years later at Chernobyl. 
And I just found that fucking fascinating. That it obviously worked in some sense. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it obviously worked in some sense. Um, so look, that was my that was my podcast, my my ramble on collectivistic fucking uh, art and participatory art versus individualistic art. And like I said, it's one of the more complex concepts around art and what what art is but my purpose of doing it was trying to get she just to have a deeper understanding of the importance of art and why it's not just a pretty thing that provides entertainment why there's elements of art that are are hugely groundbreaking and changing in our relationship with fucking power and society and to not take art for granted I hope you enjoyed that anyway and I hope it was I hope it was clear Yart I'll talk to you next week